lock your doors, close your windows, cover your mirrors, and grab a little pinch of that purifying tobacco. We're back with the Scarlet Thread Society, and tonight I have with me once again a now recurring guest and quite popular guest. Say hello. Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying 2023. And to inaugurate 2023, we have the World Economic Forum 2023 Global Risk Report straight from Davos for you. And this should be a good little walkthrough, a good discussion. As I was telling you before we came on air here, it seems like a few of their big ones we've already started to see, which means that anything we talk about might have been extremely predictive about a month ago when we had this originally (laughs) scheduled. Never too late, never too late. No, never at all. So... Tell me, Daddy, where would you like to begin? Well, hot on the heels of today's CPI report, I think it's perfect, dovetails precisely with all of the concerns of Davos, which include a no longer as predictable and manageable global economy and geopolitical environment. I hope people are ready for this because I have highlighted about 40 pages of text. I would like to go over. The reason I want to do this is very specifically the phrasing and specific terms used in this report are bang on to so many points that have been discussed. What I found quite ironic is many concerns or unfolding trends that people have pointed out that were labeled as conspiracy theories or far-right extremist spurious accusations are directly described in this report that the genesis of them is perfectly understood and they have very interesting and specific concerns as some of these previous global trends begin to unravel. Another very fascinating thing, which I think people will pick up on, I noticed this last year with the aggressive promotion of the triple-demic, the idea of we don't just have one pandemic, but three. In this report, they introduced the polycrisis, which to me is quite funny because I think any crisis by definition is a polycrisis. There are several background elements, yet they have decided to label the polycrisis as what will be a mix of events which will change the world by 2030. In the opening of the paper, they describe the health and economic aftereffects of the pandemic have spiraled into compounding crises. Carbon emissions have climbed as the post-pandemic global economy fired back up. Food and energy have become weaponized by the war in Ukraine, sending inflation soaring to levels not seen in decades, globalizing a cost-of-living crisis and fueling social unrest. The resulting shift in monetary policy marks the end of an economic era defined by easy access to cheap debt and will have vast ramifications for governments, companies, and individuals, widening inequality within and between countries. 
What I thought was fascinating are several points. The idea that this relatively recent war in Ukraine has is being blamed for past, I would argue, 15 years of global economic mismanagement. And also the idea that weaponization of energy is a novel invention. When the very definition of the petrodollar is weaponization of energy, that it does not allow countries to acquire and trade energy unless they adhere to a set of rules placed on them by other countries, which don't have to follow those rules themselves. You know, I know it's not quite what they mean by weaponization of energy, but when you consider the fact that basically the entire human history of conflict (laughs) and of war is in some degrees, you know, within six degrees of being a conflict over access to energy resources, Mm -hmm. it seems a little silly to me to, as you said, think that this is somehow novel. Exactly. You know, even guys like Tom Clancy Clancy was predicting oil wars and water wars as far back as his spy thrillers in the 70s and 80s, right? Yes, very true. They also refer to the new normal, which I think has taken on a new definition. They have described that the return to a new normal following COVID-19 pandemic was quickly disrupted by the outbreak of war in Ukraine, ushering in a fresh series of crises in food and energy, triggering problems that decades of progress have sought to solve. So I thought this is fascinating because it appears that what they're trying to do is to, again, pin on processes that have been unfolding now for over a decade all onto the singular event of the war in Ukraine, and they're trying to pin the fallout from the economic responses to Ukraine to COVID-19 onto the Ukraine war and de facto onto Vladimir Putin. Which seems a little absurd to me mm-hmm. because you and I understand how these things work and we kind of know how this game is played and how there's a shell game going on in the background of all this. But at the same time, it... It does just seem like the most obvious thing in the world Mm -hmm. that the conflict in Ukraine couldn't possibly bear the blame for the economic hardships and realities that came into being as a result of the quote-unquote pandemic. And I think one of the most fascinating things is as we move through this report, we will see that they very accurately and devastatingly dissect exactly what you've referred to. So as much as they do try to frame it in the context of no one could have seen or known COVID, the economic after effects, and the Ukraine war, they also, as we move further in, they completely acknowledge to a fantastic job analyzing Various factors which have all culminated in the current poly crisis, which is coming for us by 2030. It also is very interesting because you can tell the anxieties being triggered by these events and what they understand very well the consequences this has for globalization, for the multi-stakeholder alliance and for global supply chains 
They point out that as 2023 begins, the world is facing a set of risks that feel both wholly new and eerily familiar. We have seen a return of, quote, older risks, inflation, cost of living crisis, trade wars, capital outflows from emerging markets, widespread social unrest, geopolitical confrontation, and the specter of nuclear war. Which few of this generation's business leaders and public policymakers have experienced. So they understand that this new normal is actually a return to a paradigm which has risks for them and the power they have been able to accrue since the global financial crisis when a worldwide policy of QE ZERP, as it is referred to, which means quantitative easing zero interest rate policy, which has afforded them incredible amounts of liquidity, which has allowed this consolidation of corporate power at the top, which through promotion of multi-stakeholder governance, they have tried to solidify. And as the world enters a new era of old conflict, they very clearly understand that this has implications as supply chains shorten, which means a more localized supply chain, which provides more risk to a global business because this creates a very different situation where risk is now concentrated and severe. And it also affects the ability of multinationals to shape the contours of events because they do not have a seat at the table at every level as you would in a very widespread globalized economy, which has very long supply chains, which provides many nodes of access. So something that sort of just occurred to me, and I want to get your thoughts on before we go any further down that road. Mm -hmm. We were talking about localized supply chains and multinational governance and, you know, this sort of international business set, this corporate aristocracy. Now, we're talking about all these things in terms of risk. Mm -hmm. And while it seems to me that the price for moving back to localized supply chains would obviously be borne by everyone, both them and us, it also seems to me that risk in this context is mostly for them because localized communities can regain and retrain themselves to function locally, mm -hmm. but these sort of kleptocratic organizations can't necessarily. Exactly. So in this context, risk really is a risk to them, not necessarily to everyone even if some of the initial pain and shock will be felt by everyone. Does that yes. seem about right? Are we on to something there? Absolutely. Then they point out, which I, I loved this phrasing, they, they spell out what the Paul crisis will be. The war in Ukraine has ushered in skyrocketing inflation, a rapid normalization of monetary policy, and started a low-growth, low-investment era. So they are acknowledging that it's actually the normalization of monetary policy, which is a threat to this system. Because since the great financial crisis, 
we have been in the most extraordinary, untested, some argue absolutely insane set of global monetary policy where you keep rates as low as possible, even at zero, and you create liquidity and print massive amounts of money to pour into the economies, which all largely gets funneled upwards, which means multinationals, corporations, boardrooms are receiving the vast majority of the benefit, which gives them far more leverage and power over not just enterprise, but over global governance. So to be clear, when you say some argue, you're saying you, me, and everyone with two brain cells to rub together can see what's going on there. Yeah, and I mean, they see it too. And as this paper unfolds, I realize that the title should have been Multilateralism Under Threat, because that is what they are very clearly articulating as the concern. As we go on, certain phrases like onshoring, offshoring, friendshoring appear, and it begins to crystallize this idea that as geopolitical threats supersede threats of business, climate concerns, etc., but acute and direct national security concerns means that all of a sudden, Governments are going to start taking actions, whether or not they are necessarily beneficial to the companies that reside within those countries and which require the protection of their militaries. The other thing which they are very aware of themselves is anytime you create pressure on the middle class and you erode the power of the middle class, that is one of the greatest predictors for social upheaval and unrest that can quickly escalate into, as they state, this is not me exaggerating, they understand fully that this is how civil wars start, is a middle class, which usually can accept many things as long as they're kept comfortable. Once the middle class is no longer comfortable, you have a large group of people with a lot of energy and who felt that they have lost a lot, and they begin to agitate. They go on to say, economic pressures will also erode gains made by middle-income households, spurring discontent, political polarization, and calls for enhanced social protections in countries across the world. Governments will continue to face a dangerous balancing act between protecting a broad swath of their citizens from an elongated cost-of-living crisis without embedding inflation, and meaning debt servicing costs as revenues come under pressure from an economic downturn, an increasingly urgent transition to new energy systems, and a less stable geopolitical environment. The resulting new economic era may be one of growing divergence between rich and poor countries and the first rollback in human development in decades. So what some people claim is, you know, doomsday conspiracy, they fully understand that the past 30, 40 years of progress are in the process of being erased. And they are very concerned because they understand exactly that that leads to disruptions to supply chains, that leads to disruptions to political stability. And they understand that polarization is actually quite dangerous and 
you always want to keep things towards the center because that is where true breakdown starts to occur. It's commonly attributed to Roman governance, but when we talk about that, the thing I always think of is the principles of problem, reaction, solution, Mm -hmm. right? You see things start drifting too far one way. You create a problem on the other side that lets you jerk everything that back that way. And then all of a sudden that's when you start seeing the agitation, right? Like the particles and the atoms rubbing together as they're tugged back and forth through artificial crises. Mm-hmm. They even point out directly, they connect both economic strife and warfare. They say ge- geopolitical fragmentation will drive geoeconomic warfare and heighten the risk of multi-domain conflicts, which is again so important because they are aware the system is perfectly fine with localized war and localized suffering because it has long and spread out supply chains. So these localized wars do not tend to actually threaten the global system. Multi-domain conflicts, however, do, because then you have both a threat to supply chains and enterprise, and two, you have nation states which may have been quite amenable before that all of a sudden are not as amenable and that are starting to put their own national security and their own interests above your multilateral international interests. They say that economic warfare is becoming the norm, with increasing clashes between global powers and state intervention in markets over the next two years. Economic policies will be used defensively to build self-sufficiency and sovereignty from rival powers, but will also and this is very key, increasingly be deployed offensively to constrain the rise of others, a.k.a. our bottom line could start being hit. Intensive geoeconomic weaponization will highlight security vulnerabilities posed by trade, financial, and technological interdependence between globally integrated economies, which risks an escalating cycle of distrust and decoupling. As geopolitics trumps economics, a longer-term rise in inefficient production, aka less profitable, and rising prices becomes more likely. Geographic hotspots that are critical to the effective functioning of the global financial and economic system, in particular in the Asia-Pacific, also pose a growing concern. So I thought those two paragraphs were fantastic. I mean, that's a whole thing right there and they did the best job of describing it and offensive economic warfare is something that has not been broached now for 30 years since the end of the cold war what's interesting to me is how they're talking about using these sort of economics offensively and talking in their report as if this is somehow unusual when it seems to me like mercantilism and these mercantilistic policies Mm -hmm. have kind of always been the norm, at least through the majority of modern history. Mm -hmm. I typically mean it pretty flippantly when I say it, 
but it's times like these that really illustrate for me that the 19th century never actually ended. We never escaped these 1800s policies. And I think based on previous discussions that you and I have had, you know, both in various Twitter group chats and also on this very podcast kind of illustrate that it's not like this is even actually a change of pace or a change in the game. This is how it's always operated. They're just getting ready for a particular rough patch in it. Exactly. And I think that's kind of, that's what Agenda 2030 is. It's not even something we need to talk about like a boogeyman. It's just an understanding that the 2020s will be a difficult decade. And in order to survive, they are going to have to adapt and they're going to have to adapt to both a new political environment and a new economic environment with a policy that is no longer highly permissive and that promotes, quote, infinite liquidity and near zero rates to the same degree it once did. What's fascinating is immediately after this, they go into consequences of AI and they cover many of the things we're familiar with, deep fakes, you could modify a politician's video but what they conclude with and i i this phrasing is important they say from widening misinformation and disinformation which we've heard to quote unmanageably rapid churn in both blue and white collar jobs i love the qualifier of unmanageably implying that rapid churn is not necessarily always something that you are attempting to avoid, but it's unmanageably rapid churn. It's where things happen and it gets out of your ultimate control. That's clearly what the top concern is. You know, something that strikes me with this whole AI thing, Mm -hmm. I want to go back to that for just a moment is that when we've seen these WEF reports in previous years, they're usually like a preview of the upcoming year and the upcoming few years. But it seems like they almost missed a trick on this one because that sort of deep fake artistry has been going on the entire Biden regime. And, you know, my podcast co-hosts on Timeline Earth have been all over that as a comedic bit, but it's real. But prior even to that, do you remember when the whole January 6th thing was going on? And there was that video of Trump that didn't really sound tonally or literally like him, and it didn't even really look like him? Yes. So I just almost wonder how long they've already been reaching into that particular bag of tricks because this, that section, you know, that brief little mention of AI there Mm -hmm. seems like something that's already been going on when this is typically a preview of what they're going to try to do next. So that part of it just really stood out to me specifically for that reason. And I've spoken about this book many times before, but for those who specifically want to learn more about AI, there's a wonderful book. It's by a couple authors. The main is Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, if you're trying to find online. And it's The Age of AI. And um, I read this in November. 
and the next week chat GPT, which was covered extensively in the book came out and I almost felt like I'd entered a wormhole, but I highly recommend that book. It's, it's a compilation, I believe of essays and writings of several of these thinkers and, um, it lines out everything. And so far over the past three months, I mean, everything I read in the book has come to fruition and they went far beyond that into systems that can, that they're already setting on to tracks and they're coming up with answers that humans haven't even conceptually thought of in the realm of what would be an approach to answer that question. And I don't want to go too far because that's a whole tangent, but I highly recommend the age of AI because I guarantee everything covered in that book will be something you recognize over the next few years and the limits of, well, when the chief lizard himself is contributing to the writing (laughs) process, how could it not be immediately relevant? Everything. I read everything Kissinger writes because a you know moral ethical aside he's a very intelligent man and he's seen everything so if he says that this i i listen doesn't mean i agree with it or promote it but i listen and i always encourage people many of these politicians these are people who have worked for decades they've made so many connections they've seen so many things you know, you can choose what you take from something, but I always keep an eye on their memoirs, on their writings, on their books, because it's important. There's no reason to deprive yourself of information. They're not depriving themselves that of That is music to my ears. I could not agree more. I track and follow and listen to and observe very closely quite a few figures that I don't necessarily like or appreciate for just that reason. You know, you need to be real careful, and I warn my audience about this all the time, you need to be really careful about what you choose to dabble in and what you're messing around with. (laughs) But as long as you're protecting yourself, there is no reason not to acquire as much knowledge as you possibly can either. Absolutely. So next segment I want to go over really delves further into this I guess we could call this the middle class crisis, of which they are acutely aware. Associated social unrest and political instability will not be contained to emerging markets as economic pressures continue to hollow out a middle income bracket. Middle income bracket, get ready, you're going to be hollowed out. Uh, Mounting citizen frustration at losses in human development and declining social mobility together with a widening gap in values and equality, are posing an existential challenge to political systems around the world. The election of less centrist leaders, as well as political polarization between economic superpowers over the next two years, may also reduce space further for collective problem-solving, fracturing alliances, and leading to a more volatile dynamic. Which again, is fascinating because they are themselves quite aware of the dangers of political polarization and in the sense that water seeks, it le- water seeks its level, business seeks its level. It wants the path of least resistance because it's more profitable that way and it keeps everything running smoothly. Uh, to me, what was fascinating is a huge section of this entire paper. It's largely on the idea that I almost wonder if they realize they're at the 
maybe coming to the Rubicon of polarization, where if it just keeps going, the whole system will truly start to break down because there is almost no trust. Later on, what I found was quite fascinating is they pointed out they're equally as concerned about polarization in democracies as autocracies because they understand that it is a threat to all systems to have any society that is unable to meet anywhere in the middle. Next yeah, they speak about... You know, what's, mm-hmm. what's interesting to me here, and I want to take just one moment to acknowledge this, because I think some of the audience will be picking up on this by now, and it's kind of been tickling parts of my brain here too as we go. We talk about the WEF, and we use slang, colloquial terms like the banksters and international corporations. And we typically presume these to be the people pulling the strings behind various world governments because they're the people with the resources to reach out and touch lovers of power. Mm-hmm. But at least in their own public-facing writing here, and perhaps it is a show of humility in realizing that these are propaganda pieces they're writing, they seem like they are presenting themselves in such a way that they need to be reacting to what state actors are doing instead of reaching out and, as I use the analogy, touching those lovers of power themselves. What do you think's with that? You know, the people at uh, the World Economic Forum are the people who can reach out and touch these centers of power. So why are they talking like they're being forced to adapt to state actors, do you think? Can I ask you that? Absolutely. And I, as we go further into this, there are multiple sections I've highlighted that exactly address that, and you're exactly right. If anything, these are people who are highly adaptive to their settings. And when they see a true power shift coming, they pivot and adapt. What is excellent about this paper, and why I encourage anyone to sit down and fully read it, and I will go over it, is they go over the the specific mechanisms that will start to occur in a cascade of the global conflict. And they go over why those specific mechanisms being triggered would be very detrimental to both their ability to conduct commerce and in their ability to conduct international commerce. And they very specifically go over Um, For example, certain types of trade protectionism. They even go on to address that in the war in Russia, they're starting to become concerned because, as they point out, certain multinationals, they see them as innocent bystanders caught in the crossfire, where they point (laughs) out that certain multinationals are, quote, being perceived as the villains in certain situations because they're doing commerce with Russia or they're doing commerce with China. And I think there is a moment where they have realized when you prime populations to see certain actors as wholly good or wholly bad and that any contact with them is essentially a form of contagion and that makes that person or company, quote, you know, impure or dirty or tainted or evil. As much as I would argue they have done much of the work in promoting this narrative, which has caught a light in the minds of people, 
they understand that over time and in a continual conflict, this becomes a major problem for the ability to do business because everything is completely connected. And they know that every company is doing business with Russia, doing business with China. And I had never seen it so detailed laid out the exact mechanisms through which this occurs, which is why I think there's all of a sudden this a commentary on, oh, we need to be careful about polarization. And, oh, we need to consider if nations move to protectionist policies, where does that lead us? Yeah, I'm just sort of processing that a little bit. I suppose what's hanging me up is for as wise as this paper makes them look and for as clearly and obviously intelligent as many of these actors are, it's stunning to me that they couldn't even more effectively predict the consequences of their own action in designating certain winners and losers, villains and heroes in the international stage. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, you're going to get dragged in the public square and socially humiliated because you made those people the bad guys and then continued to do business with them. You did that. Did you think you would be immune to the consequences of your own actions? And, you know, the answer is probably that of course they thought that, but it's still wild to me that they couldn't see that as a clearly predictable thing that would happen, that they would feel the need to then play victim as if the board wasn't very specifically arranged with the game pieces in that set. Yes. Can you hear me? I can still hear you, yes. So I would go on to next. This completely covers what we just talked about. The weaponization of economic policy between globally integrated powers has highlighted vulnerabilities posed by trade, financial, and technological interdependence for the public and private sector alike. The Ukraine conflict triggered the imposition of sanctions, nationalization of key players, and government appropriation of assets, such as Germany's seizure of Russian energy companies' stakes in local refineries last year. Reputational and legal risks for multinational company operations in certain markets also grew. Consumer good companies face boycotts after continuing to provide basic necessities to Russia, and a European energy company was accused of complicity in war crimes due to linkages to a Russian gas field. In the face of vulnerabilities highlighted by the pandemic and then war, economic policy, particularly in advanced economies, is increasingly directed towards geopolitical goals. Countries are seeking to build self-sufficiency, underpinned by state aid, and to achieve sovereignty from rival powers through onshoring and friendshoring of global supply chains. Defensive measures to boost local production and minimize foreign interference in critical industries include subsidies, tighter investment screening, 
data localization policies, visa bans, and exclusions of companies from key markets. So that, to me, is all of their greatest fears laid out. That <laughs> countries will start nationalizing industry, that for, quote-unquote, providing basic necessities, countries could all of a sudden face moral opprobrium, that there might be investment screening actually not just pass through, but they might start combing through the books, that visa bans will start occurring where no matter how much money or connections you have, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be you know, led through the door anymore. And that companies could start to be fully excluded from markets and from access to nodes of the supply chain. Oh, the horror that you might not have a skeleton key to the entire world and every bank on the planet, huh? Because this is the crux of how a multi-stakeholder global governance can work. If all of a sudden you do not have access across every market, across every node of the supply chain, your power starts to rapidly evaporate. And that is why I think there is such a strong and noticeable pivot. Yeah, I think that checks out. I can understand and agree with why you'd come to those conclusions. And what I think is fascinating is they even move beyond the Russia-Ukraine conflict and start pointing out specific companies in specific European countries. They say, while initially driven by tensions between the United States of America and China, Many policies are extraterritorial in nature or have been similarly adapted by other markets with spillover effects across a broad range of industries. For example, Switzerland is considering the introduction of a general cross-sectoral foreign direct investment screening regime for the first time. Expanded state aid to support self-sufficiency in strategically important products including climate mitigation and adoption, has heightened competition within global blocks. The EU has already raised concerns about the USA's Inflation Reduction Act, which includes significant tax credits and subsidies for local green technologies. Economic levers are being used to proactively constrain the rise of rivals. This includes delisting foreign companies, extensive use of the foreign direct product rule and export controls on key technologies and intellectual property, as well as broad constraints on citizens and entities working with designated foreign companies. So again, that's the greatest fear of a multinational is all of a sudden the free open doors start to close. And that there will be true competition for the state capital, which they have been so eager and easily vacuuming up for decades. Yeah, literally feeding on like a chupacabra on goat herds. <laughs> you know, um, or like a coyote stealing <laughs> chickens or something. Oh no, coyotes eating the chickens are in big trouble. 
<laughs> they even go on to say financial and technological ramifications may highlight further vulnerabilities, leading states to proactively wind back other interdependencies in the name of national security and resilience over the next two years. That's the, the contagion factor I was talking about is now they're thinking, they're realizing this is going to just start snowballing and they're going to start seeing roadblocks everywhere and seeing preemptive roadblocks. And once people ignite on these fears, you know, it's going to start compounding, which I think they're quite aware of. This may spur contrary outcomes to the intended objective, driving resilience and productivity growth lower and marking the end of an economic era characterized by cheaper and globalized capital, labor, commodities, and goods. So, I mean, this is saying what people say is a conspiracy. Is they're going, yeah, we're in big trouble if all of a sudden we don't just have cheap and easy access to labor, commodity, labor, commodities, goods, and capital, and central banks aren't just bringing us trillions of dollars to vacuum up anymore. Yeah, I've had Twitter mutuals that I quite like and love and trust yelling about exactly this sort of supply chain collapse doomerism for you know, the better part of a decade now. And I think this is also a whole separate tangent, but I encourage people to read on this. It's very true. I still don't think many people fully understand what happened to the global financial crisis and the actions that were taken to, quote, resolve the global financial crisis, which was simply doubling down of dangerous practices and a regime of, instead of any sort of punishment or accountability, Everyone got off scot-free, and they were actually just given trillions of dollars. And yeah, it's, just had- it's not even a lack of punishment. They were actively rewarded for the yes. role they played in it. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating, too, is then they start to weave in, not just talking about nation-states taking actions and central banks, But this, I mean, this is something that, again, something that sounds like a conspiracy theory because they start weaving in how this will affect the ability of these global organizations to to work and to govern, which has been in their favor, which they are quite aware of. They say this will likely continue to weaken existing alliances as nations turn inwards with enhanced state intervention perceived to drive a, quote, race to the bottom, unquote. Further pressure will be placed on multilateral governance mechanisms that act as mitigants to these risks, potentially mirroring the politicization of the World Health Organization. During the COVID-19 pandemic and the near paralysis of trade enforcement on more contentious issues by the World Trade Organization in recent years, it will likely embed the importance of broader geopolitical spheres of influence in dependent markets with global powers extensively exercising trade, debt, and technological power. Essentially, this is fear of the rise of the nation states and federal power over global multinationals and these multilateral organizations. So... You know what? Let's circle back to that. I'm trying to collect my thoughts on something I wanted to say there, but uh, we'll come back to that at the end, I think. 
Do you want me to keep talking? Yeah, if you could. Okay. I'm, tr- I'm trying to formulate the question I want to ask yeah, it's regarding It's a very that. dense amount of information we're covering. So this part touches on, as we've been covering, offshoring, onshoring, and this idea of friendshoring, which simply means, for people who might not understand the term because they use a lot, friendshoring is when a nation doesn't necessarily fully onshore industries and supply chains, but draws those assets and supply chains to friendly alliance countries. So it's a form of a trade block, I suppose, if that helps people understand. But for example, as we're seeing unfold now, this idea of if we are going to have a situation with China and Taiwan, then how do we move industry out of China? I'm not saying this is voluntary. I know we're choosing to do this. That's why people are saying, well, what if the USA needs this critical asset? Well, who could we get that from instead if it's not going to be China? Let's look at allies. Let's look at India. Let's look at France, you know, Spain, Portugal. So it's the idea of creating. It's very similar to onshoring. It's going into a defensive position. And it's doing that with your military alliances instead of always making decisions based on what will be. The, you know, the cheapest, what will have low production costs, what will have low labor costs. So it's starting to prioritize national strategic security and goals over necessarily business goals and simply the concern for greatest amount of profit rate. They say if onshoring and friendshoring continue to be prioritized, particularly in strategic injury, industries such as technology, telecommunications, Financial systems, agriculture, mining, healthcare, and pharmaceuticals, consumers will potentially face rising costs well into the future, as costs of compliance with divergent political and economic systems climb. Multinational companies may pragmatically pick a side, speeding up divergence between various market models. Again, this is what I thought was a very fascinating thing for them to say. We're acknowledging. They might just start have to picking a country or a friend-shoring group to work with just for the sake of getting things moving again. And it may not be the best long-term choice. It may not be the most profitable choice, but they need to just be pragmatic about it and pick a side and go with it. While intended to lower risks associated with geopolitical and economic disruption, Shortened supply chains may also unintentionally heighten exposure to geographically concentrated risks, including labor shortages, civil unrest, pandemics, and natural weather events. Geopolitical risks posed by geographic hotspots that are critical to the effective functioning of the global financial and economic system, in particular the Asia-Pacific region, also pose a growing concern. So this is fascinating, and I think this is part of the pivot to understanding the dangers of total polarization in politics. Because if these companies are in an environment where supply chains are shortened and more localized and where business opportunities might be in a smaller region, then all of a sudden a a country that maybe has an extremely contentious election and 
major disruption breaks out, you're all of a sudden far more vulnerable to it because this entire system of globalization has been about spreading out risk as thin as possible and allowing for multiple nodes to go down before you really felt severe effects. But if you're in a situation where for your product, the supply chain is between like US, France, and Italy, and France, which has, as we've all seen, a pretty severe and growing amount of polarization and social unrest. If the union shut down the whole country and all of a sudden your supply chain could be completely compromised. So that's why I think they're starting to move to this concern because they're seeing how all of these factors start to congeal and create a true and existential threat to the model of business they've been using and the model of manipulation of the societies and governments that has worked before. It will no longer be as effective as it once was. In your estimation, do you think that we are coming up against a sort of rubber meets the road moment here with this concept they're talking about of moving things into specifically friendly, defensively aligned nations Mm -hmm. as opposed to whatever their chosen economic zone is. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's some selection pressure there where some allies of convenience may end up being discarded in favor of allies that are also economic powers in their own right? Do you expect the sort of vassal web for lack of a better term, that the U.S. has formed over the past 60, 70 years to see any sort of real tangible disruption as a result of the need for this, what they call it, friend-shoring policy? Friend-shoring. So I'm going to try and keep this very contained and brief. I think there are multiple, this is going to be a very PR-sounding answer, there are multiple ways this could unfold. I'm going to stick with what I like to do, which is known history and the historical cycle and sticking with the hard reality of our existing treaties and alliances. I think what's going to occur, and I feel confident saying this because we have many real world examples now, is there will be a retreat to the Five Eye Alliance. So U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. The Anglosphere, in other words. As we saw with the French subdeal undercut, is step one, you have the USA, and then step two, you have 5i. So it's going to prioritize. We're already seeing this with Canada. I mean, just in the past, like, two months, we're starting to friend for to Canada trying to move critical businesses out of China. So I think it's going to go the way of our major military alliances. Uh, Five Eye is preferable because we share our, not all, but that is outside of USA. That's like our closest intelligence sharing alliance is the Five Eye. All five countries share information with each other to a degree that they don't with anyone else. Um, Then I think Israel, which is another major ally. I think that would be another node of French shoring. But yeah, I think think it's going to follow the path 
of old school hard power and alliances. So I would see prioritization of Five Eye countries um, moving production to Canada, making deals with the UK, making deals with Australia and New Zealand. Australia also is a massive resource block. Um, I think there's still there's a lot of potential in Australia. Um, is there really? Yes. Yes. I, I have to wonder about that because it seems like you never hear anything about their potential. Really, this is probably just symptomatic of the sources that I consume too. Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me when I read and hear about Australia for any reason <laughs> uh-huh. that it's some sort of black hole portal to hell. <laughs> no, like nothing have- good's ever come out of there. They're nothing more than a floating naval base, something we can put a spy satellite over to watch China. No redeeming virtue other than its geographical location. That's all I ever personally hear about it. Australia actually does have a lot of resources and a lot of underdeveloped industries and resources. Uh, Same with Canada. Canada has absolutely massive amount of land, massive amount of natural resources, and they are friendlies. Um, the other reason, too, that the UK is another top person we'll always work with is, I mean, Bank of London is still pretty much the locus of world financial power. Um, obviously, oh, Israel, the city of London. <laughs> that could be a five, could be a 25-point series. Um, Israel, and I think what we're waiting to see is how this new Middle Eastern block with Israel and Saudi Arabia and these other countries, if they can really, you know, solidify this emerging group, because that would again be another example of a group what we would French or with even with our various Do you remember the long lost QAnon poster, Thomas Wichter? Oh my god, no. But I'm intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately around the aftermath of Trump's election, uh-huh. he was one of the really big e-celeb QAnon esotericism posters. And I'll never forget that his biggest bit was the Israeli-Saudi alliance mm-hmm. and that they were fighting a shadow war against yep. Iran. Yes. No, he's that's, that's real. That's 100% real. So what is less real about it, and the reason everyone mocked him, Yes. is because this guy was certain that it was already kinetic, that there were commando teams everywhere in all three it, of these countries. I love this guy. I need to look him up. He's right. There are. There well, are. he's been kicked off of Twitter like three times, and I don't know if he's even People posting anywhere anymore. No, that since 19, well, longer than 1990s, <laughs> but especially since mid-1990s, there has been a very strong... Israel-Saudi alliance. And yes, they've had multiple kinetic operations against Iran. Yes, he's right. Yes. I'm vindicate him. I wanted, know, to, I wanted to bring that up to you because I always just thoroughly enjoyed that content. And I like following a lot of those, the really serious QAnon guys, not the Q grifters, but the Q ones who grifters. actually believe in trusting the plan are some of my favorite accounts to keep an eye on. And well, it's actually it's actually surprising to me that you weren't already familiar with Wicked. I'm and his not. Work. I need to look, maybe I would recognize the I don't know, maybe I'm just old and senile and I don't remember his avatar, but 
that sounds right up my alley. I mean, I'm assuming a lot of what he's referring to is the group behind the Project for a New American Century. Because Project for a New American Century and Building America's Defenses 2000 paper is the second paper. The first one was written for Bibi in 1996. And it was for Israel called Securing the Realm. And most of PNAC is just a reframing of all of their original plan that they made for Netanyahu. Now, as much as I'd love to talk about that <laughs> yeah, specifically, <we're> <laughs> and be, no, believe me, I would love to talk about that. Uh, we are at yeah. an hour already. Yes, I think we might need to uh, reconvene yet again for another part. <laughs> Yes, I mean, if you want me to torture you, I could easily give you another hour. Or, but I think we covered. I feel like we covered a good amount of information, dense, high quality well, information, in my opinion. But maybe I'm biased. We should do another part of this, but we should not do it tonight because yes. we still haven't even gotten to all the cyber attack <laughs> stuff. Yes, and that was my big takeaway from the whole thing. Oh yeah, I think. You gotta. You have to. You have to lead next time, and you can lead on cyber. Yes, let's let's book that. Let's let that be a plan, and we will sign off for tonight. Wonderful. Good evening, everyone, and thank you again for having me. Yes, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Be on the lookout for the next part of this one. The World Economic Forum is not done with us yet. <laughs> Sleep tight, everybody. <laughs>